This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, January 15th, 2024. I'm Caleb Brown. When the ACLU took up the NRA's case in New York, it's worth getting behind the headline of strange bedfellows working to defend certain legal and constitutional principles to what New York is actually trying to accomplish and how they're trying to do it. I spoke with Cato's Walter Olson and Andrew Grossman last week. The following message is brought to you by Citizens for Obligatory Disclosures. Andrew, there's something you need to say right up front. Right. I am uh, outside counsel for the National Rifle Association. We're discussing their case today, but I'm speaking here in my personal capacity and as a Cato scholar. So let's talk about this case. If all you followed was the moment when uh, we learned that the ACLU would be representing the NRA in this case... So much of the response in in my highly discerning group of people who follow me and people I follow on Twitter were saying, hey, look, guys, looks like the ACLU's doing this uh this principled thing. Isn't that great? And and for for the most part, you wouldn't have even gotten to what the substance of the case was. So, Walter, if if you don't mind. Detail what the the fundamentals of uh, this case are. Sure. The state of New York, for years, pursued policies which it was willing to talk about publicly, discouraging banks and insurance companies from dealing with the NRA and citing its gun advocacy role, the, the fact that it's the leading Second Amendment advocacy group, as a reason for that. And This tied in with enforcement actions against three insurance companies that had partnered or affiliated with the NRA to offer insurance for gun owners. The state said that these programs were out of compliance, and it negotiated settlements in which the insurance companies agreed not only to pay money, not only to discontinue the products, but never again to affiliate with the NRA, even for products that were acknowledged to be legal by all sides, an interestingly extreme way for a settlement to go. And the question of whether or not this First Amendment allows government to do this came up from the very beginning, but it is different from a lot of the controversies that might seem similar. The pressure is being directed not at a controversial group that is itself doing business with someone like the state of New York, but instead at these third parties, banks and insurance companies. They are tightly regulated to the point where, as people from those lines of business will tell you, simply having a regulator look across the room at them and lift their eyebrow is enough to get you to to shape up and do what the regulator wants in many, many cases. Is this something that courts can and should review? What difference does it make that the officials were fairly open about their motivations? And then, as we will get into in, in talking about this, what are implications for others that might have been treated this way? And I think there wind up being a lot of groups that can show evidence that they have been the subject of these indirect government triangulation attempts, if you want to be dramatic about it, or, or, or pressures on their advocacy role. Andrew, when it comes to the government attempting to compel some behavior, there are legitimate ways for governments to do that. That is, hey, we, we understand that you've been engaging in this illegal activity. 
If you stop and commit to a program of not engaging in this illegal activity, we will not charge you for engaging in that illegal activity. That seems like a reasonable thing for governments to do. Right. You know, the issue with the affiliate insurance policies here is a bit of a red herring when you look at what it is the state officials have done and said in this case. Um, Here you have the head of New York's all-powerful Department of Financial Regulation issuing guidance saying that regulated insurers and banks face reputational risk for doing business with gun promotion organizations, that's what she calls them, and then specifically the NRA. You have the governor of the state issuing a press release along with the head of the DFS encouraging companies to drop their relationships with the NRA. And you have backdoor meetings with insurers where the head of the DFS has encouraged them to drop the NRA as a client. So really, what the government is trying to do here uh, is to simply deny the NRA access to financial services as a punishment for advocacy that these government officials disagree with. I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, to the extent there was problems, there were problems with the insurance policies, the the right thing to do is to correct that. And indeed, there were other policies out there on the market that had the same features to them. And the government did not take nearly any type of approach that as, as the one that it took with NRA with respect to those other policies. For these officials, the target was the NRA. This reminds me a few years ago of certain disfavored individuals or groups, be they gun dealers or exotic dancers, the banking system essentially being told, hey, we know it's technically legal what these folks are doing, but these are not the kind of people you want to associate yourselves with. There could be trouble for you if you continue down this this path. And it turned out that there had been memos and lists, uh, lists in particular of businesses that banks should consider staying away from, which helped explain some of the, the kind of herd behavior. Because ordinarily, if banking is left relatively free, then yes, three out of four banks might feel that there's a reputational problem with an exotic dancer or whatever. But shop around and you'll find some. On the other hand, if it's coming from the regulator, then it may be hitting every single one of them. And, and more broadly, you know, this is a pattern that we've seen not only in financial regulation, but through a large number of regulatory spheres. You know, it does bear some resemblance, for example, to this government censorship of social media, where, you know, the government is taking aim at disfavored speakers, but it's not doing that by itself censoring those speakers. What it's doing instead is reaching out to the social media companies and saying, well, you're hosting some speech that is very problematic and may cause some legal issues. And, you know, we may have to consider some of the privileges you enjoy under law and other threats of that nature as a, as a cudgel to encourage the social media companies to drop those speakers. That's the issue, of course, that's, uh, or at least one of the issues that's also before the Supreme Court in another case called Murph- Murthy concerning uh, social media censorship. And so it really is interesting that the court has taken up two cases this term that really bear the same pattern. Now, can we draw this line? Because it seems clear to me that it's in many ways acceptable for a government to tell someone who is engaged in some sort of illegal activity, hey, we we have reason to believe that you're engaged in illegal activity. Please stop and we'll 
commit to a path of, of not engaging in illegal activity, and then everything will be fine. And leaning on people that are affiliated with this group that you have some reason to believe is engaged in illegal activity and saying, you guys don't want to do business with them. How do we draw that line? Because this is the same issue with jawboning tech companies, as Andrew mentioned. And it it has been a topic of interest for a long time. I've written about it. Cato people have written about it. And it comes in at several different points. It comes in at, in these regulatory settlements, which are a bit like plea bargains. And Cato has had a lot to say about plea bargaining. And it uh, even can come in sometimes in private litigation where some pressure group sues and then what they're really after is to get some uh, you know, policy change rather than what they're, they're suing over. And the, so one of the themes that comes up again and again is that unless judges watch carefully and, and refuse to make themselves a part of it, the pressure of these settlements can cause people to give up constitutional rights that a court would have upheld if that had been what had been sued over. You know, your right to speak, your right to associate, uh, if challenged directly by the government, you would win every time. But in a settlement, you might permanently surrender your right to speak or associate it in certain ways in order to get rid of jeopardy on some completely different issue. And that needs at least watching by judges. It, it can be hard to say, you know, we can get a bright line rule against it. But, you know, it is not in my view, off-limits to inquire into the motives of those demanding those concessions in into the closeness of relation to what the supposed substance of the legal dispute was about, and make sure that litigation, whether it be regulatory enforcement or something else, is not used to shut people up. And I think it's important to keep in mind that the, the settlements and the these affiliate insurance policies, it's really just a tiny piece of the government actions that are at issue. For example, Governor Cuomo, as well as uh, Volo, the head of the, the Department of Financial Regulation, issued a press release that urged all insurance companies and banks doing business in New York to discontinue their arrangements with the NRA. The basis that it gave for that uh, request was the reputational risk of doing business with what they called gun advocacy organizations. So it really doesn't have anything to do with any type of violation of law. What it has to do with is those officials disagreeing with the NRA's speech. And that seems to be the core issue here, right, which is a disfavored entity for whatever, whatever reason and trying to organize people affiliated with them or doing business with them to try to get them not to do it. In the presence of a lot of background government pressure on those third parties, those banks or whoever. Now, one reason the NRA lost a lower, uh, ruling uh, below in the, in the before it got to the Supreme Court was the judges accepting a theory that I just find very Pollyanna-ish, which is, oh, well, don't government officials just like everyone else have the right to express disapproval and outrage and comment on news stories and say, oh, how can anyone associate with such and such? Well, yes, up to a point when it's in isolation and you can certainly see some uh, government officials whose word is not taken as law by <laughs> regulated parties uh, doing that, and they're not being a legal case. But when the case has reached the Supreme Court in, in various contexts, including pressure on a book publisher not to publish, pressure on a billboard site owner to take down a billboard, a, a variety of fact patterns, and the, and the Supreme Court has looked for the question of, is there a credible threat of regulatory retaliation, does it have to be spoken or can it be just that everyone understands 
that you can be punished by a certain government official. These are themselves not necessarily easy questions, but they point in the right direction, which is that, no, if there is no coercion involved, if the power of government is not being used, but only the bully pulpit of someone being a public figure because they're mayor or whatever, then it's not necessarily threatening to a free society. But as soon as government power and muscle gets in there, then yes, we need for it to be controlled and looked at, preferably by the courts. But if you zoom out a little bit, what the government is attempting to do here seems like a mafia tactic. <laughs> you're, you're not the first one to, to, to spot that <laughs> parallel. It's uh, you know nice business you've got there. Be a shame if you went on doing business with the NRA and you know got got state you know regulators visiting you every week or two on completely unrelated issues. Yeah, you know one of the things that shocked me and it has never stopped shocking me from knowing people in New York and many other places in heavily regulated industries is that uh, we'll start talking about a policy thing where their state is going badly awry and something, and they'll say we agree entirely. We can't say so publicly. We live at the will of the regulators. We cannot afford to get them upset, even by uh, criticizing them in a measured way. Now, we've lost something important if, if it's gotten to that point in big economic sectors. Andrew, anything to add? Well, it, it's also insidious that the comments by the, the government officials here were not only expressly targeted at NRA speech, but they relied on you know, what I think is a very novel regulatory theory which is that some people disagree with the NRA. There's been, you know, some people disagree with its advocacy. Therefore, if a bank or an insurance company does business with the NRA, that might create some degree of reputational risk. That then might injure that bank or insurer's business. And then, you know, by extension, you know, and it's a lot of extension, that might somehow undermine the stability and safety of the financial system. Now, you laugh when you hear that, but that is literally the argument that these officials put forward in this case, and it's literally the argument that the Second Circuit, the lower court, uh, accepted, saying that these regulators not only have the right, they have the responsibility to regulate the safety and soundness of these financial regulations, and that includes managing reputational risk and doing it in just the way that they did by saying, well, some people disagree with the speech, therefore you should disassociate yourself with the speakers. I mean, it effectively takes this disfavored principle of a heckler's veto and makes it not, not disfavored, but the law of the land. The heckler gets what they want. And it's even worse than that, because in this instance, one of these officials, Governor Cuomo, was perhaps one of the lead, leading hecklers in the country trying to spark this backlash against the NRA's advocacy. So you have a politician, you know, left and right, criticizing a policy opponent's speech and then using his criticism as a basis to debank that 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 company and get the and have them you know basically taken out of the insurance market it it is we haven't mentioned this but it's sort of it underlies a lot of this discussion which is when a an agency that regulates an entity makes a suggestion to you about how you ought to conduct yourself you're going to take it a lot more seriously than a guy off the street I mean, that's true for every business, pretty much, but it's especially true for these financial institutions. These are closely regulated industries. You know, a lot of these banks, it's not like the regulator is across town or in another state or even another building. 
they frequently have in-house monitors, regulators who work, you know, at the very next desk from the people who are making decisions. I mean, that's how closely regulated these entities are. And so many of the regulations that are being enforced involve enormous amounts of discretion on the part of the officials enforcing them. And so, you know, it literally is, it fits the cliche, you know, the regulator says jump, they ask how high. There really isn't much opportunity to oppose what it is the regulators are asking or even suggesting. A mere suggestion is taken as the law of the land. So in the Supreme Court taking up these issues, what do we hope for or what do we expect? And what is the what is the bright line that ought to be drawn when it comes to regulators suggesting to certain businesses that they should or should not do business with some disfavored group? You've asked a big question, and I think that even those who are on our wavelength as far as recognizing the problem will not always agree on uh, what are the right sorts of traditional doctrines in response, what would count as a bright line rule, given the many, many different situations and fact patterns that it would have to spread over. To me, if there is a combination of provable motives of suppressing speech and advocacy and some element of showing damage because just doing it without actually having any success is probably not going to be accepted by the Supreme Court as, as reason enough, then that's a reason to let people into court. Sometimes the damages will be very small. Sometimes the reproach to the government will be more a matter of principle than anything else. But there needs to be a path to challenge regulations and other government activity that are motivated by a desire to go after someone's constitutional rights. I think that's right. But I also wonder that the question for the Supreme Court here is actually a fairly easy one because of the way this case came up and because of the way the lower court decided it. This was decided you know, on a, on a motion to dismiss. So you've got all these allegations in the complaints about all the different things that the regulators did and said in the case. Those are all accepted as true for purposes of the court's review. The district court looked at all that and said, yeah, this easily meets the standard for coercion respecting First Amendment protected advocacy. So easy. The Second Circuit, the appeals court, reversed that. And it kind of did this divide and conquer approach where it looked at each statement in isolation. It looked at each action in isolation. It said, well, that standing alone isn't coercive. That standing alone, you know, they requested that insurers drop the NRA, but they didn't say they had to. And so that doesn't count. And they kind of went through each of these items like that without considering it as a whole. You know, the court's leading case in this area, as Walter mentioned, is Bantam Books. And what Bantam Books says pretty clearly is that you need to have what I think is a more holistic and contextual inquiry. In other words, it's not whether the government is ordering somebody to do something. It's just sort of the practical effect of that. You know, is there as a contextual matter and as a holistic matter coercion? And so I don't think the court actually necessarily has to set forth a, a clear rule that, you know, draws a clear line that's applicable in every case. I think it's enough for the court to say that the lower court here got it wrong and that's not how it really works in this instance and that the district court, the trial court, was correct to look at this all holistically and in the context of a closely regulated industry that listens very carefully to what its regulators say. And that's at least enough to get to the next stage of litigation. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, where Andrew Grossman is an adjunct scholar. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.